Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne in today's Western Germany that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence it is full of events and narrations that represent European history as a microcosm. Presenting a random fact about Cologne, all bridges in Cologne that cross the Rhine are painted in a uniform shade of green, which is now even called Kölner Brückengrün, which means Cologne Bridge Green. This is due to the initiative of the then Cologne mayor Konrad Adenauer, who arranged this in 1928. However, three bridges in Cologne do not belong to the city, but to the Deutsche Bahn, the German railway company. In order not to disturb the city panorama, they too painted their railway bridges green afterwards. So much for that. Off into the past. Back to Roman Cologne. Let's hit the intro. In the last episode I announced that the golden age of Cologne lasted 150 years from the year 100 to 250, approximately. Of course, a crisis doesn't just come out of nowhere. Until it really started, there were many harbingers of horror, and these were already announced sometimes before. For example, in the year 161, the entire Roman legion from Bonn marches eastwards. Since Bonn is not far away from Cologne, there will have been many Cologne men among them. The troops from Bonn had not fought a war for nearly 60 years. The war they fought in the Middle East against the Parthians in today's Iraq ended victoriously for Rome, but of course some Cologne men had fallen. The complete feeling of security got the first cracks. Then just five years later, in the year 166, a plague was brought back to their homelands by the victorious troops with the legion from Bonn among them, even to densely populate Cologne. A report from the ancient historian Ammianus Marcellinus talks about it. I found the original text in Latin and hopefully I translated correctly, but I took some liberties along the way. It is reported that during the Roman plundering of a city in today's Iraq, a temple was also looted. There it says in book 23 at the end of paragraph 23, quote, while searching the temple, the soldiers found a narrowness which they had opened to find something valuable. A kind of shrine which was closed by the Chaldeans when the incense burners were destroyed by them, note the plundering Romans, end note, the secrets of the plague were broken open which caused incurable diseases in the time of Varus and Marcus Antinius. From the border of Persia all the way to the Rhine in Gaul was filled with corpses. End quote. This was the beginning of the so-called Antonine Plague. The Roman looters had desecrated a temple and destroyed vessels that were probably deliberately filled with pathogens to deter potential grave robbers. What exactly this plague was is disputed. Was it really a plague or even tithes or smallpox? For our podcast about Cologne, this is irrelevant. At that time, there was no cure for it. The only chance to survive was to hope that it would subside quickly and that you would not fall ill yourself. Oh man, that really sounds like our times, doesn't it? It's not a pretty sight. Cologne must have been hit particularly hard by this plague for quite some years. Places along busy trade routes and waterways were particularly affected. 
and Cologne especially owed its status as a rich city to the fact that it also conducted intensive trade with the surrounding legionary camps. And those legionary camps, you know, there were the people who brought the plague with them. For a whole 24 years, this wave of plague raged through the empire. Especially the Italian peninsula, which was at the time very populous, lost whole areas of land to population. Therewith, the Roman Empire increasingly lost its dominant Roman-Italian character. Also at the Danube in today's Hungary, far away from Cologne, fierce fights against barbarian invaders were fought. Burdened by epidemics and wars on distant borders, the Roman state budget had also come under fiscal distress. Whether Cologne as a Roman colony continued to be exempt from numerous taxes as in the past is actually unlikely. Unfortunately, we do not know. The emperor at that time, Commodus, you might know him from the movie Gladiator, who was emperor in the 180s, took especially the cities far away from the conflict scenes into the duty to contribute more money and especially more men for the wars. Around the years 173-174, Germanic units attacked the Roman province of Upper Germania from the east. Of course, they had not escaped the weakness of the neighboring Roman Empire. They crossed the Rhine and advanced as far as the province of Belgica, today's northeast France and Belgium. Although Cologne was spared and had been virtually bypassed to the south by the invaders, it frightened the inhabitants. After all, the invaders had penetrated deep west of Cologne into the empire as far as Gaul. In the province of Belgica, however, the enemy Germanic tribes were defeated by quickly raised auxiliary troops, but the nimbus of the Roman border wall on the Rhine as an insurmountable obstacle for larger enemies' forces was gone. It was now certain. The border was no longer as secure as it once was. It still stood but it showed small cracks. During this period, the emperors changed rather quickly. Numerous civil wars shook the inner foundation of the empire, but Cologne was spared from direct influences, battles and plundering. But it weakened the empire as a whole, up to the neighboring province of Upper Germania. And thus, the forces that had provided security on the Rhine for centuries were weakened, especially the finances and manpower of the empire decreased rapidly, due to the internal and external conflicts. Thus, in the year 197, in Lugdunum, today's Lyon, a then extremely important trading partner of Cologne, since it was practically halfway to Rome, two opposing candidates for the throne in Rome met. On both sides, it has been said, have been 150,000 soldiers. And now, what happens when the best army in the world at the time fights against each other? Right. There was a terrible slaughter. Everywhere at the edges of the empire, the enemies of Rome now saw a favorable opportunity to attack their great neighbor. Once again, the legions on the Rhine had to march to distant lands to wage war, also the nearby south station legion in Bonn. The people of Cologne thus experienced the effects of the tense situation at the end of the second century of our era at first hand. Beat the numerous families of soldiers whose fathers and sons were now missing or for the economy. If fewer soldiers were stationed, there were also fewer customers who spent their coins. But wait a minute. Didn't you say that in Roman times, Cologne's golden era was until the year 250? None of this sounds like that golden, after all. Well, the facts described here are just 
harbingers of harder days to come. Here are a few examples that Cologne was still in great shape. Around the year 180, the Praetorium was once again completely extended. It is the stones from this construction phase that can still be seen under the Cologne Town Hall. With the new building, an impressive symbol of Roman power stood in Cologne on the Rhine, well visible also for the potential enemies on the other side of the Rhine. And inside of it there was a large palace hall, all paid for by the imperial court in Rome, at least that's what a broken stone slab found in a praetorium testifies to. In the year 211, the temple of Jupiter Dolicanus in Cologne was also renewed, this is testified by a corresponding inscription that was found. The governor of the province of Lower Germania, Lucius Martinus, is mentioned here as the patron. At the end of the inscription it says that, quote, Lucius Lucius Martinus, governor of the province of Lower Germania, had the dilapidated temple completely renovated, end quote. And still around the year 230, a wealthy citizen of Cologne had his dining room decorated with a large, artistically decorated mosaic. Exactly that Dionysus mosaic, which we were allowed to visit only recently during our walk through ancient Cologne, and which you can still see in Cologne today. At the moment in summer 2020, you can do so despite the possible return of Corona. Always from Tuesday to Sunday from 10 to 6 p.m. in the Roman Germanic Museum. The rest of the building, however, is closed, as already often mentioned, because it is being renovated. There is much to believe that Cologne and the Roman province of Lower Germania as a whole was governed by competent and capable governors who kept the wheels safely on course through all the crises along the way. Now we have to try again to simplify complicated factual connections of Roman history for the episode of this podcast, which is a real challenge, but we all have to be on the same knowledge level to understand what happens next. And this brings us to the so-called crisis of the 3rd century. The whole further story reads like a tragedy, for this is at the forefront of everything that will plunge the Roman Empire into crisis for almost a large part of the 3rd century. Historians have therefore aptly called it the crisis of the 3rd century. As I said, the 3rd century begins as a tragedy for the Romans, as if the empire was not already burdened enough from the outside and inside. Well, in the year 197, the bloody battle of the Gdunum, now French Lyon, had taken place between two rival Roman rulers. That's the battle I just mentioned further above. In that battle, Rome lost a lot of manpower. The emperor at that time, Septimius Severus, which is like the same name of Severus Snape, who had emerged victorious from the battle, wanted to prevent large units of troops from allying themselves against him again in the future. He simply doubled the pay of the soldiers and at the same time further expanded the military. A financial item in the state budget which had already accounted for two-thirds of the total budget before it was doubled. You may know this from your own government. What does a government do to get more money? Right. Raise taxes. Of course, the fact that this might even result in less tax revenue did not interest the imperial court in Rome. And the people in Cologne were certainly also grumbling about the higher tax burden. Nevertheless, the period until the year 211 was the last phase of stability for the Roman Empire 
before the crisis began. For in that the year 211, Emperor Septimus Severus died and now the centrifugal forces began to take effect, which the deceased emperor had still successfully controlled. Several emperors followed at short intervals, all of whom ruled rather badly than well. The cake was taken by Emperor Severus Alexander then. As early as 222, when he was just 14 years old, Severus Alexander became the new emperor. In his 14th year of now Severus Alexander's reign in 235, he was assassinated by a mutinous troop in the legionary camp of Mogons Jakom, from which the present German city of Mainz later emerged in Upper Germania. The salary raise of his pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-predecessor a few years earlier probably did not last long. But this also applied to all of his four predecessors. They had all died a natural imperial death. All of them had been murdered by friends, family members or soldiers. It sometimes surprises me that there was still someone who wanted to become the Roman Emperor at that time. But now I really have to shorten it, otherwise it gets much too complicated here with way too many Emperor names, most of them already dead before their names were even pronounced. Now a phase began in which the so-called barracks emperors ruled. The term can be explained by the fact that local Roman commanders had themselves proclaimed emperors by their respective subordinate units of troops. Of course, it had already existed before. Remember Germanicus, the father of Agrippina, the founder of our city. He had already been proclaimed emperor by his troops 200 years before these events, an offer which Germanicus refused out of loyalty to the late Emperor Augustus. But this had just happened from time to time, and often these usurpers built on extensive family networks and relationships with the Roman upper class. Germanicus, for example, was a member of the imperial family after all and a nephew to Emperor Augustus. Now, however, new self-appointed emperors appeared almost every second. The emperorship as an institution thus lost enormous authority, this was the beginning of the so-called crisis of the 3rd century for the Roman Empire. The institution of the emperorship had virtually imploded in 235 with the death of Emperor Severus Alexander. Everyone could now empower himself as emperor as long as he had enough swords and above all survived for a certain time. This leads to a 6th emperor year in the year 238 alone. You have not heard wrong. 6 of the number whose names are not important for our podcast. One of the candidates only survived for 20 days, by the way. Speaking of podcasts, this is actually about Cologne. What does it look like on the Rhine at that time? Well, as already reported, the Germans hadn't failed to notice how the Romans were beating each other up. For a long time, the Romans had successfully pitted the fragmented Germanic tribes on the Rhine border against each other. One tribe was given money as a gift, another was bribed by delivering the finest Roman merchandise, another one was given privileges, or the Romans just supported a small clan with mercenaries to fight a potentially dangerous tribe for Rome, so the Romans didn't have to get their own hands dirty. That had worked well for a long time, and had enabled Cologne to provide enormous security in the region. The numerous manors, country estates and settlements outside the secure city walls of Roman Cologne are just a few of the many examples of this era of peace. But now the payments, gifts and privileges of the Romans to the Germanic tribes were missing or they were decreased in a large scale. The Romans were busy quarreling among themselves. And now slowly something happened 
which the Germanic noble and victor of the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest, Arminius, had failed almost 250 years earlier. The Germanic tribes now permanently flocked together to form large confederations. Of course, there were several different large confederations and not just a single large all-Germanic confederation. Germanic tribes are still Germanic tribes and who do Germanic tribes like to fight? Correct, other Germanic tribes. I shall now mention the two most important Germanic confederations in my point of view, which were formed during this period in the 3rd century. Their names, if you don't already know them, should be quite familiar to you. On one hand, there were the Alemanni. They caused trouble especially in the Roman province of Upper Germania, around Mainz, south of Cologne. They formed a broad confederation of Germanic tribes very early, and the stories about their big raids were told all across the empire. They even lodged attacks into Italy, so that's the reason why many Latin languages like, like Spanish, Portuguese, French or even Italian obviously refer to this day, to this country, as Alemannia or Alemannia. Same as why the English language references the Deutschland as Germany, because of the Germanic tribes that lived here. On the other hand, in Cologne and in the surrounding province of Lower Germania, in turn, the Romanized inhabitants worried about a Germanic confederation which later became the people we would later call the Franks. Now to be historically correct, one must say that these are first the Proto-Franks, quasi that these are the Franks before the Franks. But for the sake of simplicity, I already call them the Franks now. At first, the Franks, which consisted of several Germanic tribes on the other side of the Rhine near Cologne, often only loosely formed large federations among themselves. After these tribes had joined together, they went on raids west of the Rhine into Gallo-Roman territory or their Germanic neighbors. After successful or unsuccessful raids, however, it was quite common for the internal composition of the Germanic tribes to change within the Federation of the Franks. You could describe the Franks of this time as a wild swarm that flew around confusedly, sometimes diverged, but always met again. In the course of the next time, however, they will become more and more a belonging together ethnic group, just what the Franks will be later. So, if anyone was wondering what happened to the, all those Germanic tribes mentioned in the past episodes of this podcast, like the Batavians, the Karuski, the tribe Arminius belonged to, or even the Tenctari or Sugambrians you learned about uh, during the Batavian Revolt, well, just that. They all slowly but steadily melted together to form the later Franconian people. This is called ethnogenesis, the emergence of a new people and other Germanic tribes were to join the Franks as well. But we will talk enough about the Franks in the course of this podcast. Something tells me that they will still be important for the history of Europe. It had also been normal in the two centuries before that Germanic tribes had invaded the territory of the Empire on the Rhine, but at that time 40,000 battle-hardened legions were stationed in the Roman province of Lower Germania alone. Such a manpower was no longer available after numerous civil wars, wars in the east and on the Danube, as well as an ever-increasing inflation and economic crisis in the 3rd century. In contrast, the intensity of the Germanic invasions increased enormously, not only in frequency but also in size, 
the just-mentioned formations of the Franks and the Alemanni are clear evidence of this. Why these Germanic confederations formed and started pillaging Roman territory will be a topic we will and must talk about another time. Malicious tongues could claim that this is just the nature of the Germans. Well, maybe, but that is a way too easy answer to a way more complicated topic. Everything is made more difficult if you consider the fact that, like many cultures back then and not just the Germanic tribes, they had no writing system yet. In historical science, their side of the story of the Germanic tribes hasn't been heard in the way that the Roman side has been. But as I said, we will get to that and then you'll find out the Romans did their part in aggravating the situation. Indirectly, the Franks also set the stone and the Rhineland rolling as far as further events are concerned. But for this, I must briefly come back to the history of the Roman Empire. Its condition will be of critical importance for what would happen soon near Cologne. During this time, it was not only the Germanic tribes that noticed that it was perhaps easier than ever to relieve the Romans of some of their wealth and prosperity. At the Danube, the Goths began to cross the border and raid towards Greece and today's Turkey. The Goths, an East Germanic people who, however settled far to the east of the other Germanic tribes mentioned so far, had appeared to the Romans as if from nowhere and posed a completely new danger. And as I said, why is that? We'll talk about another episode, but not now. Far away in the east of the empire, the Persians, once the great adversary of the Greeks and finally defeated by Alexander the Great, celebrated a comeback as a great power after almost 500 years of abstinence. As Sassanids, they destroyed the Parthians, the former great power of the region. The Parthians, for centuries enemies of the Romans, had suddenly disappeared from the scene and the Persians presented themselves as worthy successors. Thus, from the 3rd century onwards, the resurgent Persians dominated many areas of the present-day states such as Iran, Iraq, Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, Pakistan and Afghanistan, as well as many other areas, a truly equal opponent. In the middle of the 3rd century, the empire groaned on almost all borders under the burden of the attacking enemies. Danger threatened from the Rhine up to the Middle East. Since the year 253, a man by the name of Valerian was Roman Emperor. It was the custom of the time for his troops to declare him Emperor. But this was not Valerian's intention at first. Actually, he had wanted to help another emperor in his fight against another competitor for the throne. But since the allied emperor of Valerian, who had called for help, was killed before he and his troops arrived, his soldiers proclaimed Valerian now the emperor. To cut a long story short, Valerian defeated the rival of his deceased emperor and thus he had become the sole ruler of the empire from nowhere in no time at all. Man, what a turbulent time. And it went on all the time during that period. Depending on how you count it, there were up to 30 men who were proclaimed emperor from 235 to the year 285. Almost none died of natural causes. Again my question, why did anyone want to become an emperor at all back then? Valerian was to be one of those emperors who would end up just as inglorious. That in itself would be nothing special for that period, but Valerian actually managed to cap it all. He really put in a lot of effort during his seven-year reign though, 
an empire as great as the Romans, would still be difficult to govern today, despite modern communication and bureaucracy. Valerian himself seemed to know that too. The task of ruling the empire could no longer be accomplished by one man alone. Valerian therefore made his adult son Gallienus, a co-regent, quasi an equal emperor at his side, directly at his assumption of power. Gallienus was set to ensure order on the Rhine against the Alemanni and the Franks. Meanwhile, since the beginning of his reign in 253, Father Valerian had been constantly commuting between the Lower Danube and the Rome province of Syria to fight alternately against mutinies, Goths and Persians. From 257 onwards, Valerian was forced to cross over permanently to Syria to fight against the Persians who had invaded there. The Roman campaign was apparently successful at the beginning, but then the catastrophe happened. At the Battle of Edessa at today's Turkish-Syrian border in 260, Valerian lost despite the Persians being clearly outnumbered. A lost battle is already something bad for a world empire, especially against a new arch-rival. But not only is the entire army of 70,000 Romans lost, the emperor of the most powerful empire of the then-known world himself is captured by the Persians. It had never happened before. The Persians could have killed as many Romans as they could, but to capture the emperor alive was a Persian triumph and Roman humiliation without any equal. Valerian's trail then disappears into history, just as the entire source material of that time is comparatively very thin. It's like it's something like this. It would be like reconstructing the entire complex history of the Second World War from just a single letter between Churchill and Roosevelt. It is certain that Valerian must have died in captivity sometime in the same year or shortly thereafter. The circumstances of his death remain controversial. The capture of the Roman Emperor Valerian brought the empire to the brink of collapse. This catastrophe caused the complete centuries-long Roman rule of the Eastern Mediterranean to implode in an instant. The Persians immediately established themselves in Syria. In the absence of Roman rule, a Palmyrian Empire also soon be formed, which would take over large parts of the Roman Empire in the East. In the end, this empire with its capital Palmyra, which had broken away from Rome, ruled Anatolia, Syria, present-day Lebanon, Jordan, Israel and Egypt. And yes, it is really Palmyra, which gained a sad fame a few years ago when it was conquered by the so-called Islamic State and destroyed in many places. I myself would have had the chance to visit Palmyra as a student a year before the outbreak of the Syrian civil war. Unfortunately, I did not. For years, a photo collage of the trip with pictures of the then still undestroyed archaeological treasures hung in my Institute of Ancient History in my university. If you ask yourself, where is Palmyra? Well, now this episode literally screams for a map. You can look up this and more on the historyofcologne.wordpress.com in the corresponding companion post. By the way, I noticed that there are far too many yet important dates mentioned here. I'll list them on my homepage as well, so that everyone knows exactly what happened when. Okay, now, we should get back to Cologne. But I just want to remind you that it's important to keep these geopolitical backgrounds in mind. Even if something happens in faraway Syria, 
it had direct effects on our city on the Rhine, and that's what you are about to learn. The death of his father made Gallienus, who had continued to set up his headquarters on the Rhine, the new Roman emperor. It's an open and shut case, isn't it? After all, Gallienus was an equal co-regent already during his father's lifetime. So in times of crisis, everyone should gather behind their legitimate heir to the throne, shouldn't they? But it was the time of the so-called barracks empress. Anyone who came around could be proclaimed emperor at any time if he was brave or had the support of his soldiers. One such person became a Roman commander by the name of Marcus Cassianius Latinius Postumus. Postumus, who probably came from Gaul and thus rose from the ranks of the Gallo-Romans, had been commissioned by Emperor Gallienus to secure the Rhine border, and he had already successfully mastered this task during Valerian's lifetime and before his capture in faraway Persia, putting the Franks and Alemanni in their place. Doesn't this look very familiar to you already? Sounds like the story of Vitalius from 200 years ago, does it not? Since Gallienus knew that the Rhine border was in good hands with Postumus, the new emperor, like his father before him, then set off for the area of the Lower Danube in present-day Western Hungary to defend the border against the Goths. And just like his father before him, Gallienus now left his own, still very young son Salonius as official commander on the Rhine. Oh, um, hey, sorry to interrupt the episode here. This is the future me, and I just found out that I misspoken the name of Gallienus' son. It's not Salonius, it's Sadonainus. I'm sorry, I, I'm just a few hours away from stepping into my car and driving to my vacation holiday, or what you call it, and I had no time to edit that out and correct all of that, so I'm really, really sorry that I will refer to Saloninus as Salonius, but the next episode I will get it right, and uh, yeah, sorry, back to the show. He was de jure also in charge of Postumus, as well as other more experienced commanders, and Gallienus' confident Silvanus. Silvanus' role is, to be honest, still unclear. Perhaps Silvanus was a Praetorian prefect, the commander of the emperor's notorious elite troops and thus at the same time a member of the empire's high administrative elite. Just in the same year, all this happens by the way only in the year 260, a union of Franks and Alemanni set out across the Rhine into Roman ruled territory. The departure of the new emperor Gallienus had probably made them think that it was not even easier to attack. These federations of Franks and Alemanni plundered first together quite successfully in Roman territory near the Rhine, but they had done the calculation without Postumus. The militarily audacious commander was still here. So it happened that on the way back, these Germanic federations were attacked by Postumus and crushed. What now followed could get out of hand again and make this episode too long, which is already very long again. Therefore, let us simply summarize the following events in a dialogue that is not entirely serious. Silvanus says, Cool, thanks a lot Postumus for defeating the Germanic marauders. Postumus answers, You're welcome, dear Silvanus. Silvanus Hey, just a quick question, please forgive me, but when you defeated the Germanic armies, they left behind all the spoils they had previously taken from the citizens on the Rhine. Postumus answers, Oh yeah, there was really good stuff under there. My men were just jonasing for a chance to share the goodies. Silvanus, well, that's why I want to talk to you. The 
spoils. Command your man to return it. The emperor needs it. Postumus answers, Uh, what? Are you serious? I should take away the soldier's booty gun? Are you trying to get us killed? Because that is what it would mean to our hard-fought troops. They have earned their booty fair and square. Silvanus, I command it. In the name of Emperor Galienus and his son Salonius. Postumus, nope, I am not. By the way, I am the new emperor here now. And do you see all those soldiers you enrage with your demand? They are loyal to me and already sharpen their swords and are eager to skin you alive. Silvanus, oops, I have to go to Cologne behind that safe city wall. I think I left something on the stove. And the young heir to the throne, Salonius, certainly needs my help with some homework. Ciao. Okay, that was the famous German humor. But that's more or less how it happened. When it became known that Silvanus and Salonius had demanded the surrender of the booty for the imperial family, it was easy for Posthumus to draw the troops to his side. They proclaimed him, oh, what a miracle, as the new emperor. Silvanus, however, fled to Salonius, who stayed in Cologne at that time. For Posthumus it was clear, whoever turned against the son of the emperor and his confidence, of course rebelled directly against the real emperor, Gallienus himself. Salonius, however, immediately had himself proclaimed co-emperor of his father and Emperor Gallienus in Cologne, probably in the hope that this would give him more authority among the local troops in Cologne and Lower Germania. For Father Gallienus was far away on the Danube. From him, Salonius could not expect a quick and extensive help from Daddy. Posthumus took advantage of this, of course. He marched, among other, with the legion from Bonn, in which probably many Cologne citizens also served, directly to Cologne in order to bring about a decision against Salonius. And in this way, something happened that had not happened since the Batavian Revolt in 6970 almost 200 years ago. Cologne was under siege. Posthumous troops had surrounded the city on the Rhine. But back then the Batavians and Germanic tribes under their leader Servilus had been unable to attack the well-fortified city effectively, even then due to a lack of knowledge. Now, however, a Roman army, knowing every trick in a book, stood in front of Cologne with specialists and engineers who possess extensive knowledge of the outstanding Roman siege technology. It was the first time that Cologne was seriously besieged by an army. In the still comparatively young history of the city, truly a serious situation that could quickly escalate to worse. Inside of Cologne's city wall, Salonius and Silvanus knew that they had to come up with something really quick. Why don't we end this time with this cliffhanger? I know it's mean, but I have to. How will Cologne get out of this predicament? Something tells me that Cologne will be pulled even further into the vortex of events of the crisis of the 3rd century. Once again, Game of Thrones will be a piece of cake in no comparison. So the next episode will be exciting. Thanks as always, and auf Wiedersehen. And if you like this episode, please rate it on Apple iTunes if you use it as your platform or follow me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, what you like. Thank you. Danke.